No pressure there, Bishop. I'm preaching his favorite text in Colossians. I better not mess this up. Kids, you may be dismissed for children's church, for your church. And uh, what, what a great time of worship this morning, wasn't that? We got the gospel in a powerful way this morning. And I know last week you were glad to have Bishop back. And from what I understand, he's going to be back next week. So you'll get the main man again next week. But it is a privilege to be with you today. Does everybody have an outline or a, uh, uh, there we go, we're passing them out. So we want you to be able to follow along with us. It is good to be with you. And I want to say also happy Father's Day. Uh, you know, I am so proud of you men, fathers and grandfathers. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. As men, uh, you know, guys, how hard it is sometimes for us to be good husbands and good fathers. Those are the two most difficult things, I think, that are in our life. And by God's grace, he gives us the ability to break the cycles of, uh, of difficulty in our life. Not everybody had a great earthly father experience. Some of you had a difficult earthly father experience. But as was already been said in a powerful way, uh, the great thing is that in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the perfect father, and Jesus has introduced us to him. And so every day, women and men, every day of our lives, we get to experience the perfect father. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't you stand with me, church, and we'll read together from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. In the last couple of weeks that I was preaching here, I didn't have you stand. And last week, as I listened to the sermon, I realized I've been failing the bishop because he's, he's having us stand as we read God's holy word. Well, here it is, Colossians 2, verses 11 through 17. This is God's word. Where the apostle Paul says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no, judge, no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our great God, how we enjoy coming into your presence because of who you are. Thank you for our worship team that causes us to have the time to, to be brought into your presence, to give you the praise, to model to us how to praise you. We give you great praise. Father, for sending the Son, Son and the Father for sending the Spirit into our lives. And now we pray as we look into this word of Scripture that you would open our eyes, that you would forgive the one who teaches and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
Well, today, as the bishop has said, we've entered into a new phase in the book of Colossians. We're in a point of the book of Colossians where he's talking about the warnings of Scripture that are very, very important to us. In fact, he's talking about the warnings of Gnosticism, of legalism, of mysticism, and of asceticism, the isms. All of the isms. And, uh, and last week, uh, the bishop talked about Gnosticism some. And the, and the, and the reality is, is that there, when there are contrary teachings to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when there is contrary teaching, we might put them in the category of isms. Isms, right? Not truth, but isms. The gospel sets us free. John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth sets us free. And so we're interested in the truth in a big way. But Paul warned us last week as, uh, as, as, as we heard the teaching to be concerned for philosophy. But philosophy is not all bad, is it? In fact, the great term philosophy simply means a lover of wisdom. A lover, shouldn't we love wisdom? Absolutely. Uh, in Proverbs 1.7 in the Old Testament, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and only fools despise knowledge and instruction. So wisdom, see wisdom, there's a difference and a balance between knowledge and wisdom, isn't it? That you can know all kinds of things, but not apply them rightly. So someone said to me the other day that uh, knowing that a tomato is fruit is knowledge. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad, right? All right, so there's a difference but a balance between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge of God leads to wisdom, which is skill in living, building a life out of skill. Jonathan's about ready to get married here not too long, right? How long is it going to be? The wedding? No, no, the marriage is going to last. How long? How long? How long, until, how long until you get married, brother? August 26th. August 26th. All right, that's coming up, right? You're going to need knowledge and you're going to need skill, right? Pray for our brother. We all need that. But we, need, we all need that in life. So what the Apostle Paul is criticizing here is not philosophy. He's not saying philosophy in and of itself leads to isms or ill truth. What he's saying is that human philosophy... Did you take Greek philosophy? Did you ever study the myths? Did you ever study Greek philosophy? Well, I want you to note that is, it was intended to do life without God. Greek philosophy was, let's get rid of the gods and let's build our life on our own. And so that's what human philosophy is. Get rid of God, get rid of God and build our life on our own. Paul's, Paul is saying that we've got to be careful of human philosophy. And human philosophies, brothers and sisters, are really taken over everywhere, aren't they? They're taken over in our public schools. They're, they're taken, we see human philosophy all the time. Put God on the sideline in our movies. Now, I like a, I like a good movie, I, but, but Hollywood is not the centerpiece of God, God's wisdom. They're constantly putting God's wisdom on the side. So in our schools, in our, in our educational systems, in, in, our, in our entertainment, we see get God out of the picture. And so what we're given are isms. And last week, uh, the bishop talked about a warning from Gnosticism. Now, I want to give you, how many of you have met a Gnostic, by the way, lately? 
I don't see any hands out there. Ah, okay, good. There are some modern-day Gnostics, and I'm going to talk about it, but I want to give you a, a quick review of what Bishop said last week, and because and, and, it flows so nicely into what we have to say today. So last week, he gave us a warning against Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a Greek philosophy in Asia Minor and in, in that part of the world, what we call Asia Minor today, it was beginning to, to move out. And it was a philosophy that said this, there is an ultimate God, but that God is so high and holy, we can't touch him. We can't relate to this God that is way up there. And so the reality is, is that there's intermediate intermediary gods, a bunch of intermediary gods, eons is what they called them. And all these other gods were there. And, and so to get to the true God, you had to interact with these intermediary gods. And what Gnosticism was beginning to say in the church is, Jesus is not the supreme God, but Jesus is one of the intermediary gods. Now, if you follow us, they said in Gnosticism, if you come to our group and study our knowledge, we'll give you the real knowledge. Because the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. You come to us, we'll give you the insider knowledge that will enable you to connect through these intermediaries, and Jesus is one of the intermediaries, and to get to God. And Paul says, absolutely not. You remember what he said last week, what the bishop taught last week? He taught us powerfully that in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. And so you see, this was eminently practical in the first century to understand the deity of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he was telling us, who is Jesus? Jesus is God completely. Is that important for us? Absolutely, it's important for us. In the virgin birth of Christ at Christmas time, we, 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 we study that. Why? Because if he is anything less than God, he can't deal with our salvation. All right? And so the earliest creeds of the church are Jesus is Lord. In the Apostles' Creed, we, we, which, which another early creed in the church, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. There's only a son comes from the father. If God is divine, then the son must be divine. And so, so what, what Paul taught us last week, who, or what yeah, Paul taught us, the bishop last week, who is Jesus? He is fully divine. Now, what did Jesus do? Colossians 2.10, and in him you have been made complete. See, in the work of Christ, when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we are complete before the God of the universe. We sang that this morning. There is nothing that we can add to him through faith in Christ. Catch this. This is so powerful. When we, are, when we put faith in Christ, we are put in union with Christ. That means we are connected with everything that Jesus Christ did. The Father sees you not as a dirty, dark, mean, and nasty sinner. He sees you as, how does he see you? A sons and daughter. He sees you as Christ. He sees you through the blood of Christ. 
He sees you through his son. You and I are in union with him. So, so uh, who is Jesus? He is God completely. What did he do? He made us complete in Christ. And so there is all sufficiency in Jesus' work, not in our work. And that's, and that's why this is so important for us uh, to understand. Uh, you, do you know that the word, uh, and, and I read this in a book recently that my wife and I are reading right now. Do you know that the word Christian is found three times in the New Testament? Only three times. But the, but the phrase, in Christ, is found 165 times. You're saying, hmm, so what? Through faith. In Christ, we are put in union with the God of the universe. We are in him, and he is in us. And so he is all sufficient for us. God isn't angry at you. Isn't that good news? He's not angry at you because he poured out all of his anger on Jesus. And so does he discipline us? Yes, that was pointed out. He disciplines us from time to time. But is he angry with us? No, he loves us, deeply loves us. Uh, Our God knows us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, you say, what's the big deal? How does this defeat Gnosticism? It defeats Gnosticism this way, that if Jesus is completely divine and his work is all sufficient for us, then there's no other people you and I need to go to to get the insider knowledge to get to God, right? There's no, there's no other, there's, the Bible says there's one intermediary. And you say, are there Gnostics walking around here today? Well, not like first century Gnostics. But there are people that walk, well, there, uh, uh, let's be straight out. There's some people that Islam says Muhammad is the prophet who clarifies everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Muhammad's the last prophet. And then there are other people who say, I want you to know that, uh, that, that we've got some insider knowledge. If you would just read the Koran, you've got the, the insider knowledge of God. But there's also some other Gnostics that came by my door the other day, two by two. And they came by two by two, and they want to talk about Jesus. And, and I said, well, I, I know all about you. I know what you believe. And I know that you believe that Jesus became a God. Well, he is a God now. You see that? He is now. He's divine now, but he wasn't from eternity. What does Paul say? No, no, Jesus is, was, was divine from eternity. So there are Gnostics today saying, if you would just listen to how we interpret Jesus, you can get right with God. And there's other Gnostics that walk around that believe, uh, and, and, and some of them, my, my Mormon friends, uh, and I have a lot of Mormon friends, you say, Joseph Smith is just, if you, he is the latter-day prophet. So, so do you see how there are always people who will come along and who are really Gnostic saying, we have the insider knowledge. We've got it. If you would come and listen to us, then we can get you to God. And Paul says, no, that Gnosticism is is ridiculous. Don't believe it for a minute. And he warns them against what was uh, affecting the church of Jesus Christ in the first century and still affects us today. All right, now to our text for today. How, now he warns us against legalism. So, so this is an incredible thing, and we're going to ask the same questions that we asked or that Bishop dealt with last week. Who is Jesus and what did he do, right? And so what Paul spends about five key verses doing is telling us about the work of Jesus. Notice he spends more time talking about Jesus than he does about legalism. He talked more about what Jesus did than he did about Gnosticism. Why? 
This is a command to us and an inspiration to us to focus on the gospel, on what is true. Um, I've heard that treasury agents, when they study money to find counterfeit, we have at our, our ministry in Forge Ministry, we have a postal inspector. And he's, they're a part of the, the treasury, I think, oversight. But you know these treasury guys that look at counterfeit money? How do they know what's counterfeit? Well, the way they know what's counterfeit is because they spend most of their time focusing on the real deal. They are taught what real currency looks like, what lines need to be where, what it's made out of, how does it feel, how does it look. And so the reality, I, oftentimes I'll have guys say, hey, Pete, let's do a study on the cults. And I say, okay, maybe, but what we really need is to know the gospel so that when we see the, the, the false stuff, we'll know it's false. That's why we spend more time and why Paul spends more time on the truth than on the, the error. All right, so what does he do? First of all, I want you to note in your notes, he tells us what Jesus did. And now he uses another metaphor from the Old Testament, the metaphor of circumcision. And trust me, we're not going to go into detail about circumcision. It is what it is. You know what it is in the Old Testament teaching. But the sign of circumcision in the male Jews was, a, was the stripping away of the flesh as symbolic of stripping away of sin. That's what it was. And so uh, Paul says, in him, when you accepted Christ, there's that phrase, you see it? In him, in him, in him, when you accepted Christ, you became part of Christ, you became, you were put in Christ, in him, in him, when you accepted Christ, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of our sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then look at verse 12, buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What happened when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord through the work of Christ, Paul says, using this other metaphor, not only have you been made complete, but he says you were circumcised. Using that Old Testament metaphor, he says, a spiritual transaction took place in your heart where God, through faith in Christ, did a supernatural work. Is Christianity supernatural? Is salvation supernatural? Oh, it is. Do you always see it, feel it, know it? No, but it's, but it's spiritual. When you accepted Christ, he stripped away that sinful flesh from your heart and threw it away. In circumcision, there's a cutting and a throwing, a cutting and a throwing, a cutting away and getting rid of it. And so the reality is, is that baptism in the New Testament illustrates this reality. Now, water cleanses, right? Some of you took a shower this morning. I did. I'm going on record. I did. Uh, so water cleanses. But baptism, the, the main significance of baptism is not so much cleansing, but is death, burial, and resurrection. However you view baptism, it's more uh, the, the connection that we have with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so baptism illustrates this circumcision, this cutting away of the sinful flesh of our heart so that in Christ we have been made clean. All right, time out. 
do we still sin as Christians? Does the sinful flesh, dads, do, does the sinful flesh still plague us sometimes? Do we lose our temper sometimes? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. You heard the story of the woman who woke up and the, the, or who, who the, was in counseling and the counselor said to her, do you, do, you, uh, do you wake up grumpy in the morning? She said, no, I let him sleep in. <laughs> and, and so men, we are that way sometimes. We're grumpy. We're kind of harsh. Um, we all have sins of the flesh that are still there, right? As we walk with Christ. But are we defined by the sins of our flesh anymore in Christ? No. Who are we defined by? Christ. And so it's important that we understand that as we deal with our own sin. Because our own sin is still going to be there. But it's been triumphed over. It's ultimately been defeated. I, I have Christian friends who say, I'm tired of growing. I can't control my temper. I can't control my desires. I just can't do it anymore. I give up. I, and I, what do I do? I bring them back to the gospel. Because it is finished in Jesus. It is finished. And, and you can carry on. I understand discouragement and failure uh, in, in our own Christian life. But, but it is finished. It is done. You, the, the sinful flesh has been stripped away. And you are God's beloved child. There is power there. And so, uh, so he says that in Christ we've been circumcised. Now, what does that mean? Uh, what got us to that point? How, uh, how did that circumcision of the flesh, how did that stripping away of the old sinful nature, how did that happen? Well, uh, he, he unpacks that now. He says in verse 13 through 15 that we have been made alive together with Christ. How did that stripping away take place? What supernaturally had to take place uh, in us? Well, we had to be made alive. And so when we understand what sin does, sin kills us. Uh, and, and, and Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, sin is not a sickness. Sin is a death. Sin, we're born sinners. We're born, and so when we're born again, we're brought alive from the dead. And it's important to understand that sin, that sin killed us and separated us from God, yes. But he says in verse 13, being dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. People who are dead, if they're going to live again, there has to be a resurrection. One of my favorite stories in the gospel about Jesus' healing is in Mark chapter 5. And, and I like that story because it kind of pertains to a Father's Day issue. This, this man, uh, Jairus, who is the head of the synagogue, is, um, and by the way, back then they didn't have senior pastors in the Jewish synagogues. They had what they called a president. So you want to call Bishop President next time. You know, when <laughs> next week, say, El Presidente, you know, you can call. They had presidents. Now, they didn't preach every week. They got other people to preach. So this man, Jairus, was a very uh, well-respected leader of the synagogue. And his, and his daughter was very, very sick. You may remember the story. You can read it later. But he's, he, he's heard about Jesus. And so he goes out, and there's Jesus just doing what Jesus does out among the people. And, and he comes up to him. He goes, come, come, heal my daughter. My daughter is sick. She's going to die if you don't come. And what does Jesus say? I don't think I have the time. 
No, Jesus says, surely, I'm on the way. I'm, okay, I'm coming. But just as he starts to go, what, what happens? He's in a crowd. The crowd is pressing in on him. Do you remember this account? What happens? Somebody touches him. Who is it that touches him? A woman with an internal bleeding issue for years and years and years. She comes up, touches Jesus, stops, and says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him and say, what? The crowds are everywhere, Jesus. What do you mean, who touched you? He said, somebody touched me, and there was power that flowed from me. When she touched him, what happened? Immediately healed. She could tell immediately from the inside out that she was healed, uh, that, that, that uh, she knew it was beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so Jesus turned around, and he looks at the crowd. He says, who touched me? And could you imagine? I'm looking at his, He wasn't mad. He, do you think he knew, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's God come in the flesh, right? He knew, but he wanted her to come forward, and, 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 and so she was healed. Mean, meanwhile, she gets healed. Meanwhile, um, while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. And that man has, if, if I'm him, that father, and I, I love being a dad, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at that woman with daggers in my eyes. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And as he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. You would too. I would too. We would be yelling and crying. When he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which in Aramaic says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. And he told them, give her something to eat. Isn't that something? All those little historical details show that this was a real deal. Was she dead? She was dead. What did Jesus do? He made her alive. Could you or I do that? Only God can take that which is dead and make it alive. And, and as we have sung this morning and worshiped the God of the universe, it's so important for us to understand that the that the reason why the, the, the sinful flesh of ours could be stripped away is because Jesus Christ did a miracle in our lives by taking those who are spiritually dead and making us alive. And it's not anything we could do for ourselves. He made you alive together with Christ so that that stripping away of the flesh could take place. He made us alive together with him. And then it says, it goes on, he has forgiven us all our trespasses. I love that. So the stripping away of the flesh happened because he made us alive in Christ, but he's forgiven us all our trespasses. Emphasis on the word all. I love that. Have you ever forgiven anybody something? Yeah, yeah of course, all of us have done. Have you forgiven them all? 
You know what I found? I know, I see the smiles. Wives, have you forgiven all of the hurts of your husband? Women have, men, have you forgiven all? I like people, but when they step over a line, sometimes I have trouble forgiving. And I found that forgiveness is a process. It's, it's rarely a one-time event. Uh, a man started coming to our Forge events on Tuesday that I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, he'd been an elder in my church. And, 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 and you, when you become an elder or leader in the church, you don't just walk away, right? He walked away. And I kept coming to him and said, you, you've been elected by the people. I trained you. We spent time together. I love you. I love your family. You can't just walk away. But he walked away and wouldn't talk to me. Fast forward about eight, nine years, he shows up at the Bible study with a friend. And, and after the Bible study, he says, so good to be here. Pete, I know I left badly. Will you forgive me? And I said to him, I do. I, I, free, I already forgave a lot of it, but this makes it easy. I forgive. And he's been there for three weeks in a row ever since. Isn't it wonderful? Forgiveness, all. And I, and I can say that most of the time, for me, forgiveness has to be step by step. But in this case, I can say, yeah, I don't, have, I don't harbor anything against him. It's important for you to understand, for me to understand, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven all. All the past. All of the sins that you will commit today. And all of the sins that you will commit in the future. And, and I struggle with that at times. Uh, do you, are you ever plagued by anything that comes from your past back? I am too. And I have a pretty positive personality. That's just the way I'm wired. But there's a few things that I feel really bad about. And sometimes I'll come to the Father and I'll start confessing them again. You, you do that? You've already confessed them, and you, got, and you got forgiveness, and you come back to them because the guilt and the shame makes you feel so bad. And, it, and, and you, know what, you know what oftentimes I will hear when I do that, when I come back, and I've, I'm reconfessing? He says, whoa, 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 whoa. We've dealt with this. Uh, don't go on on this. D don't belabor this. You've learned from it. You're learning from it. But don't go into this. We've dealt with this been done. And I think in the gospel, many of us are in that category still. We go back and we confess those sins, and the Father says, I forgave you of that. Jesus paid for that. It's forgiven for all. And I think that's what sets us free. That kind of grace is what energizes us to follow Jesus. If I think he is always holding a hammer over my head to hit me for what I did in the past, that's not energizing. That's fear-inducing. He sets us free, our whole hearts free, to live for him when we, when we know that we are forgiven all. That's so important. But then he goes on. So the stripping away of the sinful flesh in Christ, how did that happen? He made us alive together with Christ, and, and, and then he forgave all of our sins. But there's one, well, actually two other quick things he did. He canceled all the decrees that were against us. All the requirements that were against us. You see, there is a very real sense in which as sinners, we are guilty, right? We stand guilty. We stand accused and the guilt is written all over us before we come to faith in Christ. 
One of my favorite stories from my wife uh, as a child is that they had a dog, Casey, a little female beagle, a cute little dog. And one time, uh, her mother, who was an excellent cook and baker, made a whole plate of brownies, and they were gone. And they said, who ate all the brownies? And they looked around, and they looked for Casey, and she was behind the couch, laying on her back with all kinds of brownies in her whiskers. She got sick, but she recovered. But the guilt was all over her, wasn't it? <laughs> the brownies. All... Now, that's cool and cute when it comes to a dog. But it's not cool and cute when it comes to the supreme king of the universe. Our guilt was all over us. It couldn't be hidden. It, it, it could never be put away. But Jesus took the decrees, the laws that we had broken. You know, all of you, all of us, had a chart against us. The decrees of our sins that we had done. And the list was very long. And he paid for them and nailed it to the cross so that those decrees don't stand against us anymore. Isn't that powerful? At one time, Karen and I went to a fundraiser. I was speaking for the fundraiser. It was a big gathering downtown Orlando, a fundraiser for the jail ministry at 33rd Street. And uh, so on the way home, I'm driving back through Maitland, and a police pulls me over and gives me a ticket for going too fast. I thought that was very interesting. You know, there I spoke for a fundraiser about the jail, and now a police pulled me over in Maitland and gave me a ticket. Well, sometime later, I got to know, and, and he's a friend of mine in, my, in our neighborhood, the chief of police in Maitland is my friend now. And I, I like, I see him, I see him. I, hey, chief, how you doing? You know, we, he's a good guy. I had him speak at Forge. I like him a lot. Uh, when I first met him, I said, hey, chief, uh, I had a ticket back then. And uh, can you get that taken off my account? You know, he looks at me and he smiles and goes, baby, you're on your own, man. You're on your own. But the reality is, when Christ saw the decrees against us, he did not say, you're on your own. He said, you were on your own and you couldn't do it. But I did it too, for you. I took the, the decrees and the guilt and the list that was against you, and I put it on the cross. Go home today. Write up a list of some of your most obvious sins. Get alone. Write them up. Just, I mean, not today. It's Father's Day. Don't think, and don't do it for your father or for somebody. Don't do, don't do it for your husband. Do it for yourself. Write up a list. Just write them up. Maybe tomorrow morning. I don't know. Write, write up a list and, and put them out there. And then, and then what I want you to do is I want you to write paid in full on it. Paid in full. Or, or do it on your computer and then just delete that sucker. Because in Christ, it's been deleted for you. He's forgiven all of our sins. He's canceled the decrees against us. One more thing that Jesus did that's absolutely powerful in this text. And it says that he disarmed the enemies against us. This is a powerful thing. Listen, if you win in a sports game, aren't you supposed to be a good winner, right? You know, say, you know, not in the face of your opponent that you beat. You got to be a good winner. If you're a loser in a sports, you got to be a good loser, right? Be a good sport. And you would think that God would do that, not, not with the enemies of God. 
The text of Scripture is, is, is powerful here. Look at, look at this. He having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he take it and he nailed it to the cross. And then it says, having disarmed the principalities and powers, verse 15, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them. This is a powerful statement. That in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the resurrection of Christ, resurrection, of course, took place because the Father accepted his sacrifice for us. In that, what, what God did is he, he, he pointed to the principalities and the powers, the false and counterfeit system that is out there that is opposed to you and to me and to God. And he says, look, look, it is finished. They have, there are no decrees there is no criticism that can be put against my people. He made a spectacle. You say, well, how does this apply to us? What is this? This is God not being a very good sport when it came to the devil and your enemies. That's all right. That's all right. And I love it. It has a powerful application because sometimes the most difficult people against us are our enemies in the spiritual world world. You have, you have, you people don't like you. I have people don't like me, but as lovable as we are. <laughs> but I'll tell you somebody who hates you with an inveterate hatred and he wants to see you fail and he wants to see you suffer every day. His name is Satan and he's got a lot of helpers who constantly come to you and, and, and say, oh yeah, if you were really spiritual, you wouldn't have done that. If you really loved Jesus, you wouldn't have had that attitude. If you really were a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you wouldn't have done that. The accuser of the brethren is one of the most powerful names given to Satan. He accuses us day and night. And, and what you and I need to say is, is sometimes like Martin Luther did, he was an earthy guy. I don't, think most, I don't think he could have been pastor of most of our churches today. Some of his language was atrocious. Sometimes he'd turn to Satan and he would say, I can't tell you what he said. I'm not going to tell you what he said. But it was something like, get behind me. Get away from me. You got nothing on me. And, and this is what we need to do as we move ahead, as we follow Jesus Christ, is to understand that in, in, in the work of Christ, so much has been done for us. Every, we've been made alive. The, the sinful flesh has been stripped away. We are forgiven all. We have a new identity as sons and daughters. And, and now, what does Paul do? Well, he says, okay, so therefore, in light of all that Christ has done, second point. My second point is very short. You're looking at your watch. I got three minutes. Um, how does Jesus defeat legalism? Well, he says in verse 16 and 17, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, don't go back to Judaism. And in the first century, a lot of these Jews that came to faith in Christ were having the tendency to go back to Judaism because it's what they knew. They wanted to go back to work. It's sort of like, I believe in God, but I'm going to do all these works to get him to love me. Legalism, following laws to get God's approval. That's what legalism is. 
It's trying to earn your way to salvation. It, it's trying to it, be on a self-salvation project. I, I believe in Jesus, Jesus and. You see, but the reality is the gospel is this. Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's the gospel. Jesus plus something is not Christianity. It's not being in Christ because he's done it all for us. So Paul says, don't go back to Old Testament Judaism. Now, let me ask you this. Just like some of you don't have any Gnostics in your life, do you have any Jewish rabbis that are coming to you and saying, follow the laws of the Old Testament? Probably not. But we do find, we do find that sometimes we want to add to the work of Christ. That we have gurus or teachers that we really like, and, and they're telling us things that go beyond the gospel, that go beyond Jesus. So my challenge to you and to me is to examine our hearts. Do we have any spiritual leaders, Christian leaders, maybe sermons we listen to online or wherever, that we look at them and we say, we say well, he's telling me to do these things, Jesus and, Jesus and. Don't do it. Don't go there. Lean on Jesus 100%. Are there some practices that you and I want to do? Hey, is tithing a good thing to do? Is it a biblical thing? Yeah. Uh, is reading the Bible on a regular basis a good thing? Absolutely. We ought to do it. Memorizing Scripture? Absolutely. We memorize Scripture here. We, we should. But are those, if you do all those things, are they going to be, God's going to love you more because of them? Can you undo your sins because of those deeds? No, those are in the category not of have to, but get to. I get to do those things because I am fully forgiven, loved, and, 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 and my sinful self has been stripped away in Christ. So the challenge of this message is the warning not to add anything to the work of Jesus Christ. It's to see the gospel for what it is and how God's grace in Christ is what energizes us toward all behavioral change, and all living for Jesus, right? So, so, so in a sense, if you accepted Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, go out and do whatever you want. Love God and do as you please, Augustine said. But if you love God because he first loved you, what will you want to do? You want to do all those things. You'll want to do all those things. I want, to do, I want to be better than I am. Not because I'm trying to earn something, but because his love is so great. And so that's the gospel, isn't it? Grace energizes obedience. Grace energizes a new lifestyle because we are in Christ. Isn't it great that you're in Christ? Because of his grace. Ah, oh, what a wonderful thing it is. So the warning... Don't go back to legalism. We don't need that anymore because we have Jesus. You take it to heart and let's pray together. Our great God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can resist those Gnostics as well as those legalists that comes into our lives. Keep us focused on the true gospel. Set us free every day that we could enjoy being your children and live energized from the inside out. For we pray these things in your strong name. Amen. Amen. All right, brother, come on up.